We, uh, we've been in a series called Let's Talk Church. Uh, I think we had about six or seven uh, in that series. I could continue it because we're always talking church, but this will be something that I won't continue with that series. But we've been focusing on our value statements, and a value statement is what we hold valuable. And one of the things that we hold valuable is we walk together, even when it hurts. We've been talking about walking together, but we really haven't talked about the even when it hurts part. And that's where I want to go this morning. I want to talk about something that's not comfortable. I'll be honest, it's something that most, most of the time it's like, I don't want to talk about pain, suffering, when it hurts. But hurting is such a big part of life. Gail and I were in her hometown, Wagga Wagga. Don't call Wagga Wagga Wagga, by the way. Somebody wrote a song called that in New South Wales. It was considerably colder than it is here. And I couldn't help going for a walk in Wagga Wagga, a walk, and looking at some of the street signs. And I had a flashback to the bushfires in Australia. We happened to be there. The, the summer of uh, 2019, 2020, a couple of years ago, where I couldn't see that sun. I couldn't see down the block. The, the smoke was so thick and had to have a, a mask, not just a simple COVID kind of mask, but one that had a, a, like a filter in it to filter out all the harmful stuff because it was just, we were in a cloud of smoke from the bushfires all around in Wagga. I don't know if you remember the bushfires. I hope we never forget them. 33 people lost their life, over 3,000 houses were burned, and uh, something like 15 million hectares of land was burned Australia-wide in those bushfires. And sometimes we go through seasons where we just can't see the end. The smoke, the heat is so bad, it could be a season of finances or health, Relationship breakups are like that. Physical things where we've been diagnosed with something. I went through a season, oh God, thank God it was like probably 10 years, 15 years ago where I finally got a solution uh, after a, a lot of searching on the internet as doctors had told me there's nothing we can do for you. I uh, had prolapsed discs in my neck, in my cervical spine, and uh, the, the pain was just overpowering to where I had, I had to, to function, I had to take uh, opiates, as in uh, oxycodone and other things to cope, because regular Panadol wasn't cutting it. Prayed, sought God. The pain was intense, and, and when you're dealing with people, as I do for, for a living, my tolerance was so short. We were in the middle, I mean, this season lasted, uh, really, for 20-something years. It just got progressively worse. We were in the middle of building and trying to buy this facility that we're in right now, which had its challenges from going to court, spending large amounts of money, $100,000 that we couldn't recoup. Uh, we're talking 17 years ago or whatever it was. That was a lot back then. It's even more now with inflation. And, but that season, going through that season with intense pain, where nobody else was suffering the way that I was. 
And I couldn't just stop every sentence or everybody I met and say, hey, just so you know, I'm not angry at you. I, I like you. I've just got something like somebody's just stabbing me in the back right now. People were doing that anyway, but, you know, metaphorically. <laughs> and nobody understood because nobody can walk in your shoes. You try to walk in somebody else's shoes, unless it's a perfect fit, it's not going to be comfortable. And that was part of my journey, but I didn't give up. I didn't quit. I prayed. God gave me wisdom, and I sought out on the Internet help and a, a lot of trial and error. Finally, I got an artificial disc put in, and, and they fused the, the lower disc. And I, you know, I'm pain-free from that, thank God, because I was honestly ready to just quit on everything and just go on some kind of a pension. Well, when you're in that kind of season, it's really easy not to walk with people. And I, I don't want our value statement, we walk together, to ever become cliche. Oh, yeah, we walk together. That's kind of T-E-A-M, team. You know, together everyone achieves more. We hear that a lot. Secular levels, business, et cetera, et cetera. This goes way more than that. You see... You get an option whether you want to walk with these other people that are here in church this Sunday. <laughs> you can tap out. And you're not going to lose financially. You're not going to lose your job, probably. You're not going to be penalized in really any kind of a monetary way. Sometimes church is like that. It's kind of an optional thing, take it or leave it. People treat church that way. And sometimes because nobody else is experiencing what we've experienced, walking in our shoes, and they can't. We tend to not want to walk together even when it hurts. The even when it hurts part of that value statement, which helps shape the culture of the church, it's a tough one. Because we're all hurting in different seasons of our lives in different ways. Where the cry of our heart tends to be, nobody gets it. Nobody understands me. These people, we're supposed to walk together. We're supposed to be a tight-knit family. And yet I feel so isolated. I feel so much on my own. It could be because of your age, your socioeconomic status. Could be because of your ethnicity. Could be a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons to isolate or even a step further to hibernate and to just become a recluse and give it a wide berth, this whole thing called church, give it a wide berth. Well, I want to encourage you. It is hard work to walk together when it hurts. And it's a challenge as much as it is an encouragement when we don't want to do that. It's an awkward thing to walk together with somebody that is hurting. I don't know, have you ever experienced that somebody loses someone? Could be a child or a mother, father, brother, sister, spouse. It's like, I don't know what to say to them. I don't know. I, have, I haven't had that. I don't know what to do. What's acceptable? What isn't acceptable? We get nervous about that. It's not an easy thing to navigate when somebody else is the one that's hurting. And then, of course, when it comes to church, 
we hear messages, and I preach them on faith. You got to have faith. If you're in the valley, don't worry. There's a mountaintop coming. I, I love it. And I won't stop preaching on faith and mountaintops. And, but walking through valleys, that's a tricky one even when it hurts. Faith, after all, is the substance of what? Things hoped for. You lose your hope when you can't see the end. You lose your hope. It's too dark to see the street sign. You lose your hope. You lose your faith. You have to have hope. We have to give each other hope. Faith is what enables you to see your way through. And faith holds incredible promises that God doesn't leave you in the middle of the trial. When you can't see, he can. So I want to go to a time where Joshua, which is Jesus, the name, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, means Savior. And Joshua has now the leadership of Israel. Moses is dead. They don't really go through, they're not allowed to spend a, a, a huge season grieving that. In fact, God takes Moses' body and hides it, buries it somewhere. Where? None of your business. God does it so you can't build a tabernacle about it or a monument. And Joshua is about to lead this nation, which is several million people, across a river, the Jordan River. And he's about to do something that I really want us to focus in on this morning. It's a time where Israel has walked for 40 long years with hurt. They are the walking, hurting people. They got out of Egypt, rescued from slavery of sin, but 40 years in a wilderness, full of hurt, God provided shade and light and heat and all of that, the basic stuff, quail and manna. But there's a lot of hurting people. And now that generation has passed, and he's going to lead them across from a wandering wilderness wasteland into Canaan, their promises. In Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Aren't you glad there's always a tomorrow? Forty years, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. Oh, but he hasn't done anything really amazing for 40 years. Well, he actually has, if you'd stop and look. Quail coming out of the sky, manna appearing, come on. Pillars of fire, clouds to shelter you. That's not amazing, water out of a rock. I, I would say if we stopped and took an inventory that some of us would go, oh, God's not, this, where's God? Why has he left me? He hasn't done anything. If you stop and think, he's actually done more than you think he has. Our thought this morning, my wife led our prayer time, and it was about giving thanks. Giving thanks. Now it's their time. They're going to they're gonna step over into amazing. You can define that for whatever you want, but amazing is not just ordinary. It's a, it's a wow. 
They're going to step into a miracle moment. They've walked together, and now they're about to step over. They're about to start the process. And the process always precedes the promise. But the trouble is that the process is often painful. The promise is there. God's promises are yes and amen. He's given us amazing promises. But there's a process that you have to walk to to get to that promise. They actually have to cross over something, a river, a, a boundary. There's a process in your thinking that has to change. There's a, a process in your character that has to change. There, there are processes, and processes are often painful, but they're necessary. They precede the promise. But the process often looks dark. It can mean that you must be abased before you abound. It's part of the promise, but the process you go through, it might look like a contradiction to the promise. You hear about the promise of financial blessing. You hear about the promise of healing. You hear about the promises. We preach the promises, but the process often looks like a contradiction to the promise. You come to church, the pastor talks about financial blessing and healing and, and relational health and all of these precious promises, but then the process that you go through seems to contradict it. What was he talking about in church? And look what I'm experiencing. You hear, you hear about these things in your life. makes it look like you're doing something wrong. Where are the blessings that I've heard about in church? Well, there's preparation. And Joshua gives a really big command. It's really where I wanna, want us to go to this morning. He gives them a, a big command before we start the process, before you put your foot on the path to actually cross over the Jordan, before we do any of the process, there's preparation. And that preparation is a big word that he uses in Joshua 3.5. It's called consecration. He says, we're going to consecrate ourselves. Consecrate comes from a Latin word which means sacred. We're going to acknowledge the fact that we as God's people are sacred. We are holy and set apart for God's use, that God has an assignment for your life that's bigger even than what the promise looks like. It's the process that you have to go through that's going to give you the Christ character, that's going to give you the, the, the intestinal fortitude, if you will, that God really wants to shape in your life, that, that, that the value in the process is actually sometimes more valuable than the promise. We want to get to the land flowing with milk and honey. We all do. Well, consecrate yourself. Process starts with preparation. It's a decision to step out and consecrate, to wholly dedicate myself to the assignment for my life. You're sacred. You're set apart. God says, I want you to step into me first before you step out into your promised land. Step in before you step out, step into me. Learn about character and courage and the capabilities that you don't even realize you have will come out during the process. 
So to walk together, even when it hurts, means that we must consecrate ourselves to God first. Nothing can hold you back when you're holding on to God. The bigger the promise, the bigger the process. So your process requires greater force than the force of your problem. And that's going to take character. In that process, you come, it comes from within. You step out. God wants us to stand apart. He wants us to become successful in Him before we do anything else. Consecration is this. It's an investment that gives far more than it takes. It's where you exert strength to gain strength. Because after the Jordan comes a Jericho. After they cross over and they get into the land of milk and honey, there's still battles. But they're more than enough. As long as they kept the focus on God, as long as their consecration stayed consecration and they stayed sacred and they stayed set apart, then there was no battle, no giant that they couldn't defeat. Because God had done something on the inside of them through the process and through the decision to consecrate. Consecration is where you get strength, you get courage. You let go of everything and everyone so that you can hold on to God. You cannot hold on to the things of this world and then somehow hold on to God at the same time. And oh, I've been there and you've been there. It is so hard to let go of the cares of this world. They're like a rope that you're hanging on to for dear life. To let go of that and know that God's hand is going to undergird you and pick you up. Well, it's a challenge. It's called faith. It'd be all great if we could do that, wouldn't it? We could consecrate ourselves in preparation. Philippians 3.10 says this, Paul says, I want you to know Christ. Or sorry, he says, I want to know Christ, but he wants you to know Christ as well. Yes, <laughs> to know the power of his resurrection. Woo, that'll get you shouting. I want to know the resurrection power. Let's walk with God, walk with God's people. Woo, the precious promises. But it doesn't stop there, Paul says. Not just the power of his resurrection. Here's the process. Participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Even when it hurts. This weekend, I recorded a message with a friend of the house, Lindsay Clark. And um, Lindsay has been through quite a journey. He leads a great organization called Metamorphic. We partner with them. Uh, many of you, if you're, if you're not new to this church, you, you will have heard him talk. And uh, his vision is a million churches. It's huge. It'll outlive him. But the depth that would cause a, a man to take on such a challenge didn't happen cheaply. It happened through consecration, through process, and through holding on to the promise. So I want us to have a look at Lindsay this morning.
Thanks, Ed. Um, well, most of you know uh, me and a lot of you know my wife, Julie. Uh, we also have two sons, twin boys, Branton and Hayden. And uh, then we also have a daughter named Rhiannon. And she was born when the boys were four years old, actually on the 14th of June, 1995. It was such a great day that day because this was our family now being complete. We'd always mm. wanted two boys and one little girl. And here we were pastoring a great church, seeing great things happen, success at every uh, corner that we turned. But like what happens in many people's lives, we then had something that happened that shook our world, mm. that rocked our faith. Uh, I was a faith preacher, still am a faith preacher today. Understand the context here in, in our church, we'd lay hands on the sick and they'd recover. We'd see so many miracles. Uh, it was just exciting because God was moving. But in the midst of this, one day we got a, a phone call from our doctor with the news that our daughter, Rhiannon, had cancer. That next morning, we uh, drove straight to Sydney from the south coast of New South Wales, uh, hoping that we'd only be there for a week or two, only to find that we were now going to be on a journey that would take 12 months. Mm. She was diagnosed with a, a cancer that was usually easy to treat in her kidneys. Uh, but what we found out about three months later is there'd been a slight misdiagnosis and they'd been treating it incorrectly. So here we now were in this battle as this thing grew. And this poor little girl, she was at this stage just about to turn three years of age. Wow. And uh, I remember the day the doctor said, we're going to have to take her kidney out. And the biggest fear I had at the time, as Julie and I were talking, were how big will the cut be around her and will she be able to wear a bikini when she grows up? Mm. But anyway, uh, what happened was they cut uh, around her stomach, her abdomen, and basically the cut almost went 360 degrees around her as they removed a three kilogram tumour from a 12 kilogram child. And so a, a quarter of her body weight, it was actually a little bit more, was actually cancer. But we then got good news. They said, it looks like we've got it all and they treated her and they sent us home back to the south coast of New South Wales. But after about five days, uh, I noticed that her face was starting to go a little bit grey again. We went back to the doctors and the news wasn't good. She had a relapse already and now had cancer in her liver, in her lungs and other parts of her body. We then embarked on a, uh, a whole mission, I guess, to try and find a solution to this. And so we spent every cent that we had, which was uh, in excess of a million dollars, uh, to try trial drugs and buy machinery in from America to do certain things. And uh, all of a sudden they said, this is working. And we got the good news that she was starting to recover. During this whole process, uh, Rhiannon had become a bit of a celebrity. Um, she was really popular at Parramatta Football Club, where uh, we would sit in the president's box uh, every Friday night and watch the football. She'd sit on Sturlow's knee and, and laugh at Fatty Vorton as he would be commentating on Channel 9. And so she became a celebrity and, and around the club, uh, the, the players loved her, the president loved her, the chairman loved her. Uh, wherever Rhiannon went, she just lit up the room. In the hospital, she would be uh, a person that they would bring other kids in just so that she could light up their day. But this journey was hard for both Julie and I and for our boys who were living three and a half hours away from the hospital. And so we went through the journey and then finally they said she's going to be okay. And we went home for a Christmas that was going to be the best Christmas ever. And it was fantastic. We had such a great time together back on the south coast. But then I remember seeing her face start to go grey once again. Mm. We went back to the hospital and the doctor said, look, I've got 
bad news for you. Your daughter's got two weeks to live. And Rhiannon died two weeks later in our arms, on our bed, at home, and went to be with the Lord. But what happened at that moment? Well, I've got to tell you, we were devastated. Understand, I'm a faith preacher, and I've seen God heal many, many people. But why didn't he heal my daughter? And so here I am in this place of confusion. I'm angry with God. Mm. And some people have a problem with, uh, with me being angry with God, but God didn't have a problem. He understood because mm. he'd lost his only son. And so here I was holding Rhiannon in my arms. And I'm just very aware that in 15 minutes time, I have to pick up our sons from school and explain to them that their daughter, uh, their, their sister is no longer around. Mm. And so I went and picked them up and explained to them in the park and, and we had this discussion. But this still had a dilemma for us because what are we going to do with this? You know, we're faith preachers and now I don't even want to go to church. I don't want to be around the church. I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to God because where is God in the midst of this horrible circumstance? Mm. But here's the thing, and this was the thing that really helped us immensely at this time. Julie and I had made a decision 10 years earlier and we did this very deliberately. We sat down and said, we now have success, but in the future, we may not always have success. So let's make decisions now that we can follow through with in the future when difficult times come. And difficult times come to all of us. And in this circumstance, uh, we had said we would walk with God and we would serve God with gladness all the days of our lives. It was a commitment that we said we'd do no matter what the circumstances. And here we were now confronted with the death of Rhiannon Summer Clark. As she died in our arms, she's there right now. And I looked at her and I made a promise to her. I said, you know what? I don't understand how this happened. But one thing I can guarantee is that I will follow through with what I promised God. I will serve him all the days of our life. And I will make sure that this does not happen to other little girls all around the world. And so that day we walked in the decision, even though we didn't want to be at church, we didn't want to be around Christians, we didn't want people praying for us, we just wanted our little girl back. That's all we wanted. But we couldn't have that. And we didn't need to make a decision because the decision had been made 10 years earlier. I want to encourage you, you know, at maybe at the end of this meeting, maybe sometime soon, to sit down with your wife, your husband, your family, and make some really good predetermined decisions that you will follow all the days of your lives so that when a difficult time does come, you don't make bad decisions. So that's a bit of our story, Ed. Hopefully that will be an encouragement to somebody. That's awesome. Uh, I'm interested because you're a pastor and you're, you were pastoring in the, in the midst of all of this. And um, so my, I, I guess I'm intrigued. How did, the, um, how did you navigate through... The church and maybe did everybody understand your journey and what you were going through uh how did you navigate the different people that are in a church did you isolate yourself i don't believe that you left the church or anything uh that that could also be a very difficult thing and how did you how did you end up getting through all of that well it's interesting ed because um, a lot of people do isolate themselves when they go through a difficult circumstance we knew that that was the worst thing that we could do uh, and we knew that we needed to be in the company of believers. We needed to be in the presence of God. It was not a time to run away from God. It was not a time to run away from the church, even though, to be honest with you, that's the last place I wanted to be. Mm. Because every time I was in church, I was reminded of what we'd lost. Mm. 
But the other side of that was we made a good decision to stay engaged, and that's very, very important. But the other part of this story was the inept attitudes of many of the Christians around us. They didn't know how to deal with us. And this is a good lesson for all of us today because I don't know how good I would have been at ministering to someone in the same circumstance mm. before that day. But now I know because what we found was that a lot of the Christians around us just became weird. They all wanted to prophesy over us. They all wanted to have a word from God. I mean, can you understand how unhelpful it is when someone walks up to you and says, they're there, it's okay, your daughter's in heaven. Do you know what? I know my daughter's in heaven. I'm a preacher, but that doesn't help me. The problem here is I'm going through grief. I've lost my daughter. My wife has lost her daughter. And so often the advice given by people in the church was actually more about how they felt, about their confusion, and about how they didn't know how to deal with this rather than actually walking with us and helping us. So the thing I say to Christians today is, uh, if you've got a relationship with someone that's lost something, whether it's a, a you know a, a, a child like this or a business or a, or a spouse or whatever it might be, then just be normal with them. Because you know, Ed, one of the most the things that I guess the thing that really I was longing for in the middle of this whole situation was one sense of normality. Mm. I'd lost my daughter. My relationship with my wife and children had changed. My relationship with God had changed. Mm. And all I wanted was just for someone to be normal. If they played golf with me before, play golf with me now. Don't come and prophesy over me. If they were someone that, you know, would hang out and, and just chat about ministry, come and chat about ministry. Just be normal because I was looking for something to anchor myself into. So the church, uh, I think, can be the greatest help on the planet if we think this through and we actually really focus on what the person is going through and try and help them and not be so worried about, you know, about how we feel. Let's really invest and walk with people as they go through difficult times. That's awesome. Just a question. Um, in what way has this shaped you? Uh, I know I don't believe God is the author of all of all of this, but uh, but we come through it. Hopefully, we, if we do come through it, we come through it a lot stronger in character and in faith and in, in a lot of ways. How, how has this shaped you for what you're doing now uh, as you're, you've got a worldwide ministry with Metamorphic? Our church uh, is part of that. We're partnering with you. You're, you're on your way uh, this week, actually, over to Africa, Cambodia, I believe India, Nepal, all, all these places where you're planting churches. You must run into a lot of people that are, that are going through grief and hardship, not just uh, from uh, somebody dying, but perhaps from losing a business, uh, going through divorce, all of, all of those things that can happen to people that hurt uh, on the journey. How, how has this shaped you and what, what advice or what, what, what can you tell uh, all, all of us that are, that are watching? Yeah, great, great thoughts, um, Ed. So the first thing I'd say is for everyone out there, God didn't cause this to happen. But God knew it would happen and he's used it for his glory and for us to be able to do certain things. Now, can I be really honest with you up front? Yeah. I would trade everything I've ever done to have my daughter back in my arms right now. That's the reality. Yeah. And I'm sure every mum or dad can understand that. 
but I don't have that choice. No. So what we've been able to do is maximise it for kingdom purposes. Mm -hmm. So I tell this story. I don't tell it a lot in Australia because mostly here we just need to get over ourselves because we have first world problems. But when you're dealing with uh, people in the Congo who are in the middle of a civil war or Burundi where, where the HIV rate's 40% because soldiers come over the border and attack the, the females in the villages and there's absolute destruction in some of these places... And often as I go there as a Westerner and I start talking about blessing and I start talking about overcoming and I talk about victory and, and all the things that you and I believe, they, they sort of sit there and think, yeah, but you don't know my circumstance. And then I tell them the story of Rhiannon Summer Clark. Mm. And usually even those that have had great loss themselves sit in the room as church planters with tears rolling down their face realising that I understand pain. And based on the fact that I understand pain, they now listen to what I've got to say. And the reality is um, that doesn't compensate me in any way, but it has been a help to thousands, probably tens of thousands of people around the world as we tell this story. So the reality is Rhiannon and Summer are still having influence around the globe today. But I say it again, I'd rather have her back in real life and trade all of those other things for it. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is that from a philosophy of ministry, it's affected me also. Um, I'm, I'm a faith person, but I also understand that we do walk with God in our sufferings as well. Mm. The promise is not that we'll never have a problem, that we're immune from problems. The promise is that we will have problems, but he gives us the grace and the power to overcome. I believe in blessing. I believe in healing. I see lots of people healed even today. I believe in all of the, the promises of God, but I also understand that we live in a real and fallen world. And so I think my preaching and my uh, approach to faith changed quite dramatically from, um, for want of a better term, a blab and grab type approach where, you know, yeah, you know, just pray and there's always a solution because of that. The reality is sometimes... Uh, prayer helps us, but we've still got to walk the journey. Um, there's no way around it. And so people say, oh, well, how long has it taken you get to get over this? And it's like, what do you mean get over this? I will never get over the loss of my little girl. And the way to think about that, and this is true for many of you, sometimes you know, we can think, oh, I've got to get over this quickly. And, and I think we should get over ourselves in terms of the smaller problems of life. But there are major things that happen that you will never totally get over. You'll learn to walk in those things and live with those things. So for me, it's a little bit like I lost a leg when Rhiannon passed away. And I'm never going to grow another leg, but I'll learn to live with one leg. And so I've learned to live without my daughter, but I still carry the scars on my heart. And I will until the day I meet her and Jesus uh, in heaven. Um, question, who, if anybody, helped you through this, perhaps someone in the body of Christ or somebody that really did get it? Um, you know, what, what maybe uh, you don't have to name the person, but uh, what, what help did anybody give you as you were walking through this that maybe uh, you, could sh you shared your burden or you had one leg, to use your analogy, and it helped carry you so that you could still walk? Was there anybody 
in the body of Christ that did that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Ed, and I, I wish I could just say, yeah, there were lots of people that helped me, but the reality is there wasn't. Mm. Um, there were people that tried to help, uh, but what they were really trying to do was to feel better themselves and also to get me to do what they wanted me to do. Yeah. Uh, instead of really reaching into my world and Julie's world, so we had friends, some of them pastors, some of them congregation members, who um, would walk with us. Um, but then after a short period of time, they go, well, you know, now it's time for you guys to get over this and move on. Uh, and that wasn't helpful. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. And uh, for some of you, you might be thinking, how comfortable would you feel with this? But I remember for the first two years, Julie cried in church every Sunday. And she'd sit there on the front row with tears streaming down her face. And this made some other people feel uncomfortable. In fact, other pastors even, who would then say, oh, you know, you've, you're going to need to spend time talking to your wife and coach her through this. She can't be, you know, share, showing her grief like this. But my, uh, my advice to Julie was, and my commitment to her about this, was you can cry every day for as long as you want. Um, this is the way you're expressing your grief, and it's healthy. And so, and so, I think we had. I, I think, to be honest with you, I just think people didn't know what to do, and they didn't know what to say. Um, but here's the thing: when it comes to church life, sometimes we need to be good at just not saying anything. Sometimes we just need to sit with people. Sometimes we just need to love people. Sometimes we just need to walk with people through the whole journey. Not a little sprint, not a little jump or a leap where, you know, oh, I'll cook you one meal or something like that. That's all helpful. But to walk with someone through the grief journey for a day, a month, a year, as long as it takes, that's what it means to be the church. Wow. The scripture that, um, that we use today uh, out of Philippians that, uh, that Paul said this, his desire was to know him and the power of his resurrection but also to know Jesus in the fellowship of his suffering. Uh, what does that mean to you when it comes to your relationship with Jesus and his suffering and, yeah, the fellowship? Yeah, I think, um, again, I think um, in my immaturity before this actually took place, mm. and I was pastoring a church. So, you know, I've been to Bible college, I'm pastoring a church, I'm leading you know, I'm leading leaders. I'm, I'm the regional superintendent for the AOG at that time. So I have influence. And yet I didn't really understand that because my experience, to be honest with you, had been stress-free. It had okay. been, uh, I, I hadn't had suffering. I hadn't had issues. I hadn't, so for me, it's normal to live a, you know, a, a almost perfect life as a, as a Christian and as a Christian leader. But that's not true. Um, that, and that scripture makes it very, very clear that we we need to walk with Jesus in the good and the difficult times. Mm. He went through difficulty and so so will we. And I think this message is very important at this time in history. As the clock winds down and we get closer to the end days, mm. persecution will come against the church. And we will have difficulties because of loss, but we'll also have difficulties because people don't like us. And so we will, yeah, we will be discriminated against. And the key for us now is to make the decision now, how will we behave in those circumstances? So what I've learned is this, that, um, that I need to serve God 
in every season. And I don't serve God because he blessed me. I serve God and then he blesses me. So it's not, I'm not doing it to get God's favour. I have God's favour. Remember someone saying to me in the middle of this situation, oh, do you feel like the favour of God has lifted off you? And I remember looking at them, to be frank with you, want to slap them across the face because what a ridiculous thing to say. I live in God's favour and that has nothing to do with the outcomes in my life. My life could fall apart, but I'm still favoured by God. And my life could be, I could live in a castle, I'm still favoured by God. So his favour towards us has got nothing to do with our circumstances. And I say this for a reason, because sometimes some believers, and we need to not be this sort of believer, see people that are going through a crisis and then ask the question, what did they do? What did they do wrong to make this happen? The reality is they didn't do anything wrong. They just live in a fallen world and they still have God's favour on them and we should treat them with respect and honour and walk with them and love them and embrace them and accept them through this whole circumstance, whatever it might be. Wow, that is such good advice. That's, that's awesome. I wonder if you could uh, do us the favour of praying for our congregation and... Um, you know, just as we close the service, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to pray for people here that are listening, that are, that are watching even online, that have been through crisis, grief, uh, painful things on the path. Uh, if, if you would pray, that would just be awesome. Fantastic. That would be my absolute privilege, uh, Ed. Lord, I thank you for each person in this place today. And also online, Lord God, I thank you that you have a plan and purpose for each of us. And Lord, in good times and bad times, that purpose doesn't change. Lord, I thank you that your favour never walks away from us. And so, Lord, I pray that your favour would be evident in our lives. But Lord, I pray that you give us courage and you give us strength to walk through the difficult times, Lord God. And Lord, I pray for every person in this congregation, every person that's associated with City Church. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would learn how to walk with others when they have difficult circumstances. Lord, let us truly be a company of believers that care about each other that walk the journey. Lord, I pray for those that have got things going on in their lives now and feel like they should isolate themselves. Lord, I pray that they come to the place where it's safe, in the presence of God and in the house of God. Lord, I pray that no one would walk away because of a circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so, Lord, I pray it would become the conviction of every person here. Lord, that when bad things happen, we walk towards God, not walk away from God. Mm -hmm. When bad things happen, we would walk towards our brothers and sisters, mm. not away from them, that we truly could be Christians and truly be the church that you've called us to be. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I like what Lindsay said. And by the way, that was not choreographed. I didn't have those questions written out in, in advance based on my message or anything. Uh, I believe God orchestrated that interview. And... Um, what he talked about, he had no knowledge of what I shared or any of that this morning. But I want to give you a chance to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. He never leaves you. He walks through the circumstances, but you will go through things. He doesn't uh, just make you Teflon, but bulletproof. But I want to give you a chance. Everything starts with a decision. Lindsay and his wife made a decision 10 years prior that they were going to serve God. 
they're going to walk with God no matter what. Joshua said, consecrate yourselves before you get on the path, before you get into the process. God says, make a decision. Everything starts with a decision. I made a decision probably 40 years ago to follow Jesus Christ. I've had the ups and the downs, but I've, I've never stopped following him because I made a decision. So I want to give you a chance to make that decision. If you're here or you're watching online, God just wants you to know he is the savior, not the condemner. He's the author and the finisher. He's not the destroyer. And his name means salvation. So if you want to make that decision to follow him and to get on the journey with him in life and not do it on your own, then I'd love to pray with you right now. So if you're here, you can bow your head, close your eyes, just so you can have an intimate time with God. If you're watching or listening uh, online, I'd love for you to just say this simple prayer after me, but mean it in your heart. It's a decision to ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart. Pray this after me. Dear God, I thank you so much for loving me so much that you came and you saved me. Jesus, I give you my heart. Amen.